everybody. I'm Pastor Robin, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Good morning. My name is Holly and I am the Bowmanville site pastor. Good morning to you watching in Port Perry, in Pickering, in Ajax, watching online. Maybe you were away for the long weekend and you're catching up with us. I'm really excited to spend this time together with you. If you know me, you probably know that I grew up as a competitive swimmer. I started from a really early age. I started in elementary school and I swam for the Pickering Swim Club all through elementary school, through high school, and then in college I swam for the University of Illinois. And swimming was my thing. I spent every spare moment in the pool. But before I found my thing, my parents really wanted me to try new things and to try to find hobbies and interests. So as a little kid, they signed me up for a lot of different activities. I tried soccer and I cared a lot more about picking flowers than I did about scoring goals. I tried skating and I got to put stickers on my helmet and that was about the best part for me and just like fell a lot on the ice. I tried singing camp one summer, and there's a reason I am not on the worship team. I tried piano lessons, and for an eight-year-old, like I hated it with like a deep, fiery passion. I would try to get Miss Joanne to talk as much as I could for the half hour that I had the lesson for, because it just literally meant less playing time. And so the doozy of all doozies, when I think about all the activities and sports that I tried, it had to be dance. I started out in like a combo class, so it was ballet, jazz, and tap, and it was fine. Like we're all young and can follow basic instructions, so it wasn't a total disaster, but I definitely didn't have rhythm, and I definitely didn't have flexibility. And so as that year came to a close, my mom asked me if I wanted to sign up again, and I was like, yeah, all of my friends, all of the cool girls are doing this new thing called acro, and it's this combination of like gymnastics and dance together. And so I begged my mom to sign me up for it, and she was, fi- she was like, fine, okay, we can do it. So don't I show up to the first day of acro without the skills to touch my toes, let alone, let alone do a bridge or a back walkover or even a proper cartwheel. And that's the thing about dance. You have to have the same skills as the other dancers in order to perform a number. You have to follow the steps aligned and in tandem with the other dancers for the performance to look complete, for it to look like it makes sense. And so when one kid, me, had to crab walk in the final recital while all the other girls were doing perfectly beautiful bridge walks, it really did affect the entire group's ability to perform it. And I want to draw a parallel from this embarrassing story of my childhood to what I'm talking about today. And it's this idea of shalom. And as we unpack this name of God together, Yahweh Shalom. Now, shalom might be the only Hebrew word that you kind of know off the top of your head. And we know it to have this loose translation of peace. But actually, it's quite difficult to translate this word because of the depth and the vastness of this word. But the truest, maybe best definition that we can come up with in the English is this idea of completeness or of wholeness. It's derived from the word shalem, which means whole or complete. And though we know shalom as peace, it's not only the absence of conflict or of strife or discord, but it's actually something better in its place. 
It extends beyond peace. It refers to something with a lot of different pieces and a lot of moving parts that make a whole together. And when one of those parts is missing or is fractured or is doing the crab walk, it disrupts the state of shalom and therefore has a need to be restored or to be fixed. Shalom is harmony in, not, in which all of the pieces are fitting together, and that peace is coming from that interconnectedness. It's the state in which all things are aligned with God's perfect plan, and humanity lives in a flourishing unity with one another, with nature, and with God. In the beginning, God created the world in shalom. We walked in the garden with God in shalom, but sin fractured that peace and it led to this brokenness, division and suffering. Shalom was the vision that God had for the nation of Israel and bringing shalom or restoring shalom was the responsibility we see God give many of the leaders in scripture that we know so well. He uses them to guide his people back into shalom into a state of wholeness. And today we read this story out of the book of Judges. And we see this like really interesting human interaction between God and one of the leaders that he is giving this task to. He's entrusting this task of leading his people back into Shalom. And God is revealed as not only having a dream of shalom for his people, but actually it's like the very nature of who he is. It's the fabric of his being. It's one of his very own names. But to understand this particular story where God gets this name, we need to know exactly where we are in the story of the Israelites. And so the book of Judges starts out where the Israelites are new homeowners in the promised land. They have just moved there. Joshua has just taken them into the promised land. And the people in the surrounding area who would have been their neighbors are not super pleased about that development, to say the least. And all the Israelites are in this wrestle, right? They're trying to drive out these other people groups. They're trying to stay faithful to the covenant that they had made with Yahweh, all the while trying not to worship other gods and therefore be led astray by these morally corrupt neighboring people groups. Now, right before chapter six was Deborah's story of leadership. Deborah was a judge, and maybe you know that story really well. And so that leads the Israelites into Shalom for 40 years. But what happens in year 41? Exactly what you think happens. The Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Judges, verses, uh, Judges chapter six, verse one, says that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, the caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other Eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined all of the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up to their livestock with their tents and, and to their tents and they swarmed like locusts and it was impossible to count them on their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So here's this picture of Israel in complete and utter despair. They are living in dens and caves like animals. Their crop and their livestock has, has been completely destroyed. So not only are their food sources depleted, but they're also in economic ruin as a people group. They are not thriving. 
And that kind of weird fact about the Midianites on their camels, well, it actually gave them like a tactical advantage on oppressing the Israelites. Everyone with the spiritual gift of mercy, I'm sure right now, has to be reminded that this oppression wasn't just random. It was the impact of Israel doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. They were worshiping other gods besides Yahweh. And these nations were doing things like sacrificing their children. This wasn't just the Israelites trying to be friendly to their neighbors, but it was their complete abandonment of Yahweh, moving away from worshiping him and moving towards worshiping other gods who had not saved them and not come through for them. Verse six, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And God, because he is a God of mercy and of second chances, <clears throat> answers them but not without a discussion about it first. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, verse eight, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you out, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I have rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. God references his prior savings of the Israelite people. He comes with receipts. He reminds them all about the other times that he has swooped in to save them, the covenant that he established with them, and they have been blatantly ignoring it. He recalls their Yahweh-given victories, not victory, but victories, all of the times that he has come through for his people. He reminds them that they are stuck in this cycle of saying they will follow and trust him, but never actually follow through which is the cause of their current oppression. But their own choices have put them there. But God is mercy and he has compassion for his people. His desire to see his people in shalom is too strong to leave them in despair. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, not Oprah, which I probably will end up saying at some point today because it's spelled very similar, that belonged to Joash the Bezerite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. For those of us who are not, who are not wheat threshing experts, the wine press was a weird place to thresh wheat, but it was a great place to hide. God finds a man in literal hiding to be the leader of his people and to start this process of deliverance for the nation of Israel. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. He said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, who is maybe not feeling so mighty as he is hiding in the wine press. Gideon, speaking to God's messenger, replies. He says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring you up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. I get to read it like that because the commentary literally said, Gideon rather cheekily picks up the words that Yahweh had previously spoken and challenges him with them. And while Gideon is wrong in complaining, in complaining that God has not come through for them when he absolutely has, 
I honestly just appreciate a good wrestle in scripture because doesn't it just remind you that these people are broken and sinful and struggle with the exact same things that we do right now in our relationship with God. But God indulges him even as he's in his weakness. Not because he owes us, but because he loves us. Not because he owes Gideon, because he loves him. God is not put off by this gesture from Gideon, and God is not put off by yours either. Instead, he turns his face towards Gideon, and he commissions him. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And don't you just totally get it when Gideon replies, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all of the Midianites, leaving none alive. God graciously accommodates room for Gideon to share his doubt, but he does make sure to make reality really clear that it's not by Gideon's own strength that he is going to save his people, but it's through the Lord's that he will lead the Israelites out of peril and back into Shalom. And then this is where he starts to clue in that perhaps maybe this might not be a messenger from the Lord, but he might actually be speaking with the Lord himself. And this is a pretty big deal. We only see this eight other times in the Old Testament where we see God takes upon himself this physical form for a really short duration. And we might be used to that idea because we now are on this side of the timeline and we understand Jesus as God in human form, but this would have been so crazy for Gideon. And I'm sure he is internally just freaking out. But we see what he does next. He double checks. Verse four, um, 17, Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that this is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Verse 19, Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. This wouldn't have been like a swift 20 minutes loaf of bread kind of ordeal, but this was 36 pounds of flour. So this would have taken a really long time, but God indulges Gideon, he waits. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. And then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And now that realization, that hunch that he had, that this might be the Lord that he's speaking to is unraveling in his mind. And the realization that no one who sees the Lord in the Old Testament lives afterwards is also playing out in his mind. And he is utterly terrified that he is going to die. But God's character, full of patience and grace and peace throughout this whole entire, entire encounter, continues. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is peace. Yahweh Shalom. He names this, after the two things that he has experienced in his time with the Lord, 
Yahweh, who appeared to him, and Shalom, the life-giving word that was spoken to him, the word that changes everything for him, the thing that he knows that he knows that he knows down in his core to be true about God. Despite what his feelings and his circumstances tell him otherwise, he knows God as peace. For Gideon, the anxiety of the call to deliver God's people is eclipsed by a greater reality of God's goodness, his completeness, his peace, the shalom that he offers Gideon in the face of fear and doubt. But God's interaction with Gideon leaves him right where he left him. I'd love to tell you that shalom just fell un into place under Gideon's rule and that you know, everything totally works out. But instead, we actually see that Gideon enters into a series of events filled with chaos and destruction and pain and fear and doubt and just war. The literal same day God commissions Gideon, God asks him to tear down his father's altar dedicated to the two gods, Asherah and Baal, the god and goddess the Israelites have been worshiping. And while that obviously ruffles some feathers because everyone wants to kill him afterwards, so he navigates that and then he has to rally an army together, which is no easy feat. And then he has some second thoughts and he asks God for more signs. This is the fleece story, if you know it, if you're familiar with it from Sunday school. <clears throat> and if you're not, it's essentially that, God, uh, that Gideon asks God for a very specific and in my humble opinion, strange sign to double check, to triple check that God is with him. We pick up in verse 36. It says, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if there is dew on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and he wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. How many of us totally do that? Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. I'm not sure if you've ever asked God for a sign before, but I honestly love this. The God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, made that fleece blanket or cloak or cloak or Patagonia wet and dry because he is a God who reassures. He leans down to Gideon's level knowing that he is human and has worries and doubts. And he shows Gideon yet again that he can trust him because he's Yahweh Shalom and that he is with him. And then peace, nope, war. They head off into the fight with the Midianites and you'd think God knowing Gideon's a little nervy and doubtful about the whole thing would give him more than he needs to win, right? Wrong. God continues to ask Gideon to get rid of men in the army. First, whoever is scared, which fair. So it starts out with about 32,000 and then, you know, a bunch of them are scared. And so we get about 10,000 men. 
And second, I mean, God is God, so he can enlist whoever and however he wants to be in his army, but he decides that the army will go down to the water. And whoever drinks from the water, like a dog, is out, and whoever drinks like the water and cups it in their hands is in. And so that takes the army down from about 10,000 to 300 hand drinkers. And so with clay pots and torches, no weapons, God allows their enemy or their army to win over the 135,000 Midianite forces with 300 men and some fire on sticks and some clay pots. And then peace in the land. But honestly, it's not really for that long. The brutal part is, is that I've just taken you on this 15 minute journey of the story of Gideon's commission and rule. But after about 40 years, Gideon dies and the Israelites fall into the cycle again. They do evil in the sight of the Lord and they lose their shalom in their land and with God. They fall into even more destruction and even more oppression and brokenness and sin and do evil yet again in the eyes of the Lord. And when we zoom out on the Israelite story, we see the big picture of the Old Testament. We see the shattering of the shalom in the Garden of Eden and that God's people are in this cyclical nature of God saving them or providing for them or coming through when they ask him to. And he captures their hearts. They worship him for a moment. And then when they're not in danger or he doesn't come through the way that they hope he will, um, he comes through in his own way or they get frustrated with their circumstance, they wander away. They worship other idols, other gods that did not save them. They turn their back on Yahweh and therefore fracture the shalom he is trying so hard to create with his people again and again. And every time he tries to restore it. And this story is one trip around that cycle for us. But there are so many more. However, God, in his kindness, enters into chaos. He's, he enters into brokenness, into strife, into discord. This cycle of wandering away from our creator. And he gives us true shalom through his son, Jesus. Jesus steps into the world that he created as the ultimate fulfillment of God's dream for shalom for humanity. He lived a perfect life in harmony with the Father, exemplifying love and compassion and reconciliation with every single choice and every single action that he makes on earth. Jesus expresses the Father's heart for shalom every time he writes something that has been wrong, every teaching that he shares, every demon he dries out, every healing he completes, every time he forgives a sin, every single moment that he invites an outcast into relationship, every single action he makes on earth is to set into motion his dream and his plan for shalom for humanity. He demonstrates this example of abundant life of abundant peace, and then he fulfills it himself. As the prophet Isaiah said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. At the cross, Jesus took the weight of humanity's sin, the weight of that dysfunctional cycle, paying the ultimate price for our reconciliation with God. He accomplishes true shalom by addressing the very root of the problem, the separation between God and humankind through sin. Through his death, he bridges that gap. 
He creates the ability for shalom to come back and exist in the world through his spirit. Through this gesture of love, Jesus offers us shalom in the here and the now. He offers us healing and he offers restoration for every broken heart and every soul that is weary. Even if chaos still exists in our world around us, we can be secure in his shalom. But he takes it one step further. He invites us into shalom for all of eternity. And all we have to do is say yes to following him. I think what's really beautiful about this story is what it reveals about the nature of God. As many of you know, I was the kids pastor in Ajax uh, for a few years, and I learned a lot about how we teach the Bible to young people. This is my nerdy little kids pastor pet peeve about Sunday school, and I somehow try to bring it up in every conversation I have about the Bible, but it's this idea we're up against when we read scripture called moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's essentially just a fancy word for basically reading scripture and trying to come up with the moral of the story to manage our sin. It's distilling scripture down to, if I do good, I will feel good theology. Scripture becomes this divine behavior manual, and we look for moral examples in the stories to follow, which isn't actually the good news of Jesus. But we often get stuck when we explain the Bible to our kids because there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot going on. And so it's hard to distill it down. But the problem with that theology of do good so I can feel better is that it often turns out that we make the humans the heroes of the story. We point to a story like this in Sunday school and we say, look, look how Gideon overcame his fear. He was so brave. He faced adversity. Be more like Gideon. Be fearless. Like how many of us remember that in Sunday school? But this story is not about Gideon. It's about God. It's about Yahweh Shalom. It's about how God is not conflict avoidant. To be honest, when our summer series uh, was just a concept and I had a few names of God that I got to choose from to preach on, I picked Yahweh Shalom because I found it easy to connect with personally. I think I actively feel like God is a force of peace in my life. And so to be able to share that with you felt like such a privilege, such an important part of God's character to share. And I was so excited. But then I got to the assigned text. I got into Judges 6. And I was like, is this the wrong one? This one sets up for like a whole story of war. And like the peace doesn't even last. And so as I was unpacking this story in Judges, I realized that this book is the most bloody and violent book in the whole Bible. And I was like, super, can't wait to do that. But the more and more I sat with it, the more I read it over and studied, and the more I let the Holy Spirit kind of influence me and guide me in what I wanted to say and how he wanted me to speak about it, I realized that I had a really cheap version of peace that I was thinking about. I had my own shallow idea of what I believe peace to be, to unpack. And I know there's a percentage of us out there who don't mind conflict, but guys, I hate it. I like hate that feeling of like knowing you have a difficult conversation or knowing you have something to iron out with someone. I am so conflict avoidant if I can help it. I actively have to fight the feeling of not shoving things down and avoiding it at all costs. Arguments to me in relationships feel like they threaten relational intimacy. 
Do you ever feel like that? Like you're afraid to say how you truly feel because you just want to avoid having the fight. You don't bring up the argument because you don't want to risk the relational fallout. You let the hurt in your friendships just fester and a fight because a fight just feels too painful and the loss of relationship is, is at the cost of it. So you just bury it, you shove it down. And the problem is, is that if you don't deal with it in a healthy way, it will end up dealing with you. If you end up, you'll end up losing that connection with that person or you'll let bitterness start to grow in your heart. Our shallow idea of peace is not smoothing things over, is smoothing things over, but that's not what God's idea is. And so while it's uncomfy and while it might not feel good, it is a very good thing that God is not conflict avoidant. When we look at the nature of God, we see that he always has the big picture of shalom in mind. He is not afraid to step in. He is not afraid to right something that is wrong. He fights for injustice. We do not see him avoid the uncomfortable thing. He is not like us. He has the greater goal of shalom in mind. He is not afraid of the messes that we make. He serves justice where it is needed. There's actually no situation that is too broken or too messy or too far gone that he cannot redeem or sort out or mend. See that shalom God has designed is not shove it down shalom. It is not avoid the war, avoid the chaos, avoid the conversation shalom. It is bring it into the light, fight the fight, find the true resolution shalom. It often seeks out that discomforting conflict because God is not a peacekeeper. He is a peacemaker. He cares too much to be conflict avoidant. He loves us too much to leave us in the wake of our own destruction, even if we were the ones to cause it in the first place. Where the world and the flesh and the enemy steal, kill, and destroy, God actively chooses to chase peace down. Through his son, Jesus, and through the restoration of all things. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And what we actually see is Jesus waging war on our sins for the effort of true shalom. And in this story, we see God actively pursuing peace, even if there's a big conflict to establish it. He will stop at nothing to establish shalom, even our uncomfortability with conflict. The second thing that I think we see over the nature of God in this story is in this story is how God is with Gideon in the absence of peace. I'm sure Gideon would have loved it if God just smoothed over all the situations that were causing him worry and fear and anxiety, like if the Midianites just vanished into thin air and it just sorted out all their problems. But I think in this book, we see time and time again how God doesn't always change our circumstances, but he promises to go with us instead. I think it's so interesting to see how God shows up for Gideon as he wrestles with his own anxiety in this story. Because it's easy to say, oh, look how brave Gideon was. But I think if you turn it around, you get to see a great example of how God interacts with those of us who struggle with fear and anxiety and doubt. You can just see God's kindness, his patience, his graciousness as he deals with Gideon ever so gently, letting Gideon test him over and over again in the name of just reassurance. He indulges all his worries. He does not invalidate him. He doesn't say to Gideon, I already told you I'm with you. Would you just leave it alone? He makes the fleece dry. 
he makes it wet, all in the name of love and patience and kindness. And then he goes with him. The God of Shalom can rule in your heart while you struggle and while you wrestle and while you work out fear and anxiety in your life. First Peter 5 verse 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that's like a really nice thought to think, but unless you take God at his word, you'll have the tendency to do the opposite, to gather your worries and anxieties and to bottle them up and to carry them around yourself. But what does God do when Gideon casts his anxiety on him, when he casts his cares, when he worries to God? God takes a step closer. God reveals himself as peace. He, like a gracious and gentle father, God speaks to him. He shows up for him. He's ans he answers his questions again. He reassures him. He meets his needs. If that's you this morning, if you are struggling with fear and anxiety on a regular basis, I want to remind you that Jesus goes with you. He promises you the ultimate advocate, the ultimate comforter, his spirit, his own spirit of shalom, his peace, which is far better than any sort of illusion than we can come up with ourselves. In John 14, Jesus says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. God gives you his peace, even in the middle of chaos. He does not give as the world gives. He gives you true shalom. I think the third thing that we really get to know about God through this story is that he invites us into the process of restoring shalom. God could have dealt with the Midianites any way that he wanted to. He's God. But God chooses to invite Gideon, who I'd argue is just a very average dude, into the process of creating shalom on the earth through three, freeing the Israelites from their oppressor. God's heart is for the earth to look like heaven, and he chooses to include us in that restoration process, even though he doesn't have to. But because he loves us and because he wants relationship with us, he chooses to invite us into that process. As I said before, dance didn't really work out, but swimming did. And I fell in love with the feeling of being in water. I like love the feeling of peace that I have when I go under the water and can feel my ears filled with water, which I know freaks people out, but I love that like muffled noise of just, you can't hear noise, you can't hear other things, you're, you're forced into quiet, you're forced into peace. And as I read this book a few years ago that piqued my interest because it had a swimming analogy, it reminded me of this idea, this idea that God invites us into the process of shalom. It's Aaron Nequist's book, and he, uh, he has this opening paragraph in The Eternal Current that is so beautiful. I want to read it for you today. A great and mighty river flows through history towards the healing and the restoration of all things. If you've read the Bible, you know how the story ends. Love conquers death. A new heaven and a new earth are established, and the God of love and justice finally puts all things right. Our creator is carrying every corner of creation into a beautiful future. He goes on to use this analogy of the kingdom of God being like a river. 
an eternal current, the current of Christ that is woven in and throughout all things, always renewing, always restoring, where the things God wants to happen, happen on earth as it is in heaven. And he explains that you and I have been invited into the river to swim. He says, Jesus didn't merely invite me to believe about the river, to believe that it exists. He didn't say, here is the truth, believe me. He said, I am the truth, follow me. The invitation is participation. We are invited into God's eternal current of shalom in all things to swim in the river, to be active in the process, to live in wholeness with him and with others, to participate in restoring where wholeness is not present in the world. It's fighting injustice like racism and poverty. It's taking care of the earth that he has blessed us with and made. It is treating other people made in the image of God like they are made in the image of God with value and with love. It's showing God love for, God's love for all people in every single relationship you have, even the hard ones. It's really beautiful. It's a beautiful analogy if you let it be, but it requires trust. It requires trust that the one who is the source of the current knows what he's doing. Because peacemaking is an active role that God gives us. Participating in Yahweh Shalom's Shalom might look like having a difficult conversation you've been putting off with a family member you haven't spoken to in years. The river might float you by a friend that you need to reconcile with and apologize to for the sake of shalom. You might pass some rapids that feel really scary. Shalom is hard and holy work, but God invites us to participate, not because he has to, but because he desires relationship with us, harmony with us, wholeness with us. I'd like to end our time to today together by inviting God, Yahweh Shalom, our God of peace, to have reign and rule in our life. Would you join me? So God, we thank you that you do not avoid conflict. We thank you that you enter into it with intention of making peace in our lives. We thank you, God, that even when peace feels far away or absent, you are with us. I pray for those of us who struggle with fear and anxiety, would you remind us of our reassurance in Christ? And would you remind us that you are a God who wants to reassure us? You want to remind us of your love and your shalom. And God, would, you take, would we take you up on your invitation to get into the river and swim? Would we accept your offer to get into that current of shalom in all things? to participate in the restoration of shalom in your world, the work of joining you as you make the earth look more like heaven. Would you lead us and would you guide us for what that looks like individually in our lives as we trust you and as we follow you, God? Would you lead us and would you guide us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was great to be with you this morning. See you later. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. We hope you enjoyed what you heard. God bless you.